Nice one, two. Hey, hello. Is that, is that roughly where you're going to hold it the whole? Yeah, I'll probably hold it right there. Is just right? I'm just starting to get the tickle of the fur. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows what that is on. <laughs> <laughs> just got it right at the t- the tickly furry bits. Just just hit him a chin. Is that what you're in? Is that your thing? That's your. Not at all. <laughs> Very old school with my sexual preferences. Hello and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast episode 81. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio and today the live circuit and podcasting. Carl Donnelly is a comedian, writer and podcaster who has an almost hippie-ish attitude towards his career and it's really refreshing and commendable. The fact that he's really happy with where he's at and the amount that it's taken to get to that stage for him personally as well as professionally, as well as his comfort but not complacency in the speed at which his audience is growing, I think it's something that a lot of people could learn from and a lot of people could get a lot out of. We also talked a lot about his mental health issues related to the breakdown of his marriage and deaths in the family and more. If you enjoyed the Tony Law episode of this podcast, which if you haven't listened to, I highly recommend, I think you'll get a lot out of this episode as well. If you listened to my original plans pod, where I celebrated two years of this podcast and I talked about my plans for podcasting in 2017, you'll be aware I wanted to start a mental health podcast. And I've sort of abandoned that project. In fact, I haven't just sort of abandoned it, I've completely abandoned it to a lot of heartache and frustration on my part I was really excited about it at the start of the year I really wanted to do it but it felt like every time I got near the idea or every time I wanted to do the idea it felt like people were comparing it to other podcasts out there that were more established I felt problematic I felt like I didn't quite know fully what I was talking about in all the areas that I wanted to cover and I just felt like there were other people that could do the show and the idea justice more than me and if I do do it I'll probably have to do it in a little while's time rather than right now I just, I feel like working on my mental health and working on this show and the time capsule, which will be out in sort of September time, is way more worth my time and way more worth the effort right now. Um, That's not to say that I've completely shelved the idea, it's just I've sort of put it to one side. I put a pin in it, is probably the best way of putting it. And that's really helped with my anxiety, that's really helped with my worry about releasing that show and potentially upsetting people or potentially saying something inappropriate just because it's uh, sort of a funny mental health podcast is what I was going for, Um, which is a bit more light-hearted. But yeah, I will come back to it, I'm sure I will. But for now, ATI and Time Capsule are my two babies that I'm going to work on this year. So this was one of the episodes that was originally designed for the Mental Health Podcast and I'm really proud of it. We also discussed loads of things that we would normally discuss in Ask the Industry which to do with audience growth and just keeping in touch with fans and building that connection with them and trying to build a career on the side of that on this club circuit and all the things you would come to know and love from this podcast so i feel like it works really well so i hope you get a lot out of it i definitely did without any more delays this is carl donnelly i don't think uh, my mental well-being over the years has influenced me getting into comedy i think getting into comedy was pure chance pure luck i just you know i was i was sort of guided into it by someone else you know my ex uh, ex she would just she just told me she was really into it and one day she just said you should do stand up i don't know why she had that in, like instinct but we just started you know i'd started watching live comedy and was really enjoying it so she pushed me into that not pushed me into it but just gave me the sort of nudge i needed and then yeah just, she was absolutely right i really loved it when i did it but um Oh, yeah, I think it gave me, having had, you know, having been somebody who's a bit, you know, prone to up and down emotions that, you know, have often been uncontrollable, you know, so I've not, I've gone through phases when I've not had control at all over my emotional state, I think, um, informed a lot of my stand-up, even early doors when I didn't realise it did, like, I used to, all just yeah. I used to, when I started out, all my stuff was little silly stories about getting into weird scrapes and odd thi- odd experiences I'd have. And you know, actually looking back, most of the them events that ended up being stand up happened, I think, because of the way I am and my you know my sort of anxiety and my you know my low self esteem and my sort of awkwardness. That on stage I don't look awkward. I look really confident, but. The st- when I, but then I'll tell a story about how awkward I've been in another situation. So I think it's that weird thing where 
yeah the actual stories i think came from a place that was probably linked to my mental state but i didn't realize that until probably a couple of years ago when i started properly thinking about the you know the actually talking about the the background to it and talking about being medicated and talking about seeing therapists and talking about all that i realized that actually when you put them side by side it makes a lot more sense i saw your interview where you said that um people perceive people on stage as particularly confident and obviously it's not always the case and it's in fact rarely is it the case and i found what you were saying about um i mean do you ever did you ever think that because you again another thing you said in another interview was how you would tell or you would you would tell a joke as like a defense mechanism when you were younger and i wonder whether that was something that had followed through even a, a little bit into like adulthood i think so I, I think i did that classic thing as a teen where i was i was i was a, i went for a period of being a very large teen you know i was very chubby hear that uh, so i was obviously the butt of jokes of certain groups but what i'd quickly learned was to be the funny guy in the group of bullies i remember like getting in with the group that used to bully people and i just you know it's pure you know it's shameless and i'm not proud of it but you know i did just think right i'm gonna ally myself with these guys because if i'm the funny fat one with them they won't bully me so i think that's where i started probably honing my my comedy chops in terms of like (laughs) taking a mick out of it but that's not what i do now i would never do it on stage i'd never ever say anything mean to somebody on stage which actually weirdly in edinburgh this year i had it i i I was messing around with the audience and somebody messaged me afterwards saying that something i said to them actually upset them and i've never been so upset with myself as a comic because that is the last thing i'd ever want to do because i used to do it and i know how bad it is so yeah i think it probably you know that thing of saying something funny to not so that you're not the butt of the joke I think it was something I did throughout my childhood and teens. For for people who don't know maybe the background of where your mental health got to, what what was the turning point for you in ma- the meaning you would start to identify it rather than run away from it? I've always sort of no, I've always known that I've got weird things that aren't normal. Like you know, I you know I know that my myself is like my self image has always been crazy. Like you know, I've always because I was a fat teen. I'm, I've been convinced that I am fat forever. Even when I've been really skinny, I've, you know, sort of, I've, I've, I've got some form of body dysmorphia, I suppose, but like, you know, I've got fear, I've got, you know, chronic fears of any, like going to swimming pools and stuff like that. You know, if I'm in a pair of swimming shorts, I've, you'll never, I, I, have to, I have to rush to the water just in case I think somebody's seen my torso. So it's like, I've always known them little things, but I never really put them all together. And then it wasn't until my actual, you know, my I just lost total control of my own emotions. I found myself, you know, at, at my lowest ebb. You know, I was contemplating all sorts of terrible stuff. And, you know, I just, I, w- I was, I could go on stage and be the happiest person in the room. But then I could go back to a hotel room and, you know, self-medicate myself to sleep. And, you know, I just, I went into a cycle of, Re- uh, that was terrible and then I think it was yeah it was when I finally actually thought Do you know what I don't think I'm coping that was the moment when I went to a doctor started and they, they sort of you know I did that thing of thinking the doctor would go you know you're actually fine and I you know that didn't happen and next thing I know I was you know I was seeing a professional and yeah actually once I started talking to somebody a stranger and saying it all all out loud everything out loud not making a joke out of it not just not saying it to anyone I knew once I started saying it out loud I couldn't believe what I was hearing myself saying and how I hadn't realised up to that point how bad I'd got so that was when it sort of I actually started dealing with it that's no that's in I'm not I'm not trying to compare in any way but I had a very similar I was very fat as a teenager and I lost loads of weight like the second year like the second summer of uni and then I came back and everyone was like, oh, you look so fit. And I was like, I don't. No, no. I, I don't. But thank you for saying yeah, it. Yeah. But I have, now I've lost a bit, <laughs> but I'm not as skinny at all. And then I remember someone from home life who hadn't seen me when I was at, back in the summer yeah. commented on something going, you need to eat. Like literally yeah, something like yeah. that. And I was like, 
nah, I'd be all right. And, and it sparked this off in my head because I'd remembered a few summers earlier the whole, uh, you know, fat bastard in um, Austin Powers? Oh, yeah, yeah. Who used to say, oh, I eat because I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy. Yeah. It was that until sort of I sort of equated in a weird way like the fact that I wasn't getting anywhere with girls with being fat yeah and then I re- and then I got thin and then I realized it was my personality yeah and then and then I worked on both and now I'm okay yeah but yeah. as in not I do loads but it's, it's just a case of it was such a weird I think media driven thing in my head as well yeah because everyone around me was really good looking or I felt oh, like really? they were. yeah but that's the weird mine's not related I don't think mine my sort of self-image is related to media or anything it's all in my head like my girlfriend gets so annoyed with me for my constant you know obsession with being fat or looking terrible all the time and you know she (laughs) it must be i suppose it must be annoying for her because you know it is an indictment on her if i'm saying i look like shit i don't shit i'm fat oh my god look at the state of me i can't believe i'm wearing this there's nothing else i got like you know i'm just oh i'm always that is one of the things that will i don't think i'll ever sort out but i've learned to just live with it and uh you know it's an indictment on her that is saying to her you've got terrible taste so i think she does get frustrated with me but i mean that seems to be the only one that still is consistent and happens i've dealt with most of the other stuff i'm not as you know i'm not as prone to just you know getting really down on myself and getting really down about everything like weirdly comedy is the one thing i've never really stressed about and that's that's the oddest thing of all like I'd, if most comics i know comedy would be the thing they worry about the most in their life but throughout it all comedy is the one constantly thing this is one thing it's constantly i think of as a positive and I enjoy doing it, and I enjoy writing, and yeah, I never, I never have any worries about comedy, weirdly. So, is that that's the performing side and the writing side? Every or? side, every side, career-wise, like I've never, you know, I think weirdly, com- most comics have some issues with their place in comedy, unless you're, unless you're bloody an arena-selling comic, you know, most comics seem to think, I wish I was doing that, or you know, so and so's doing that. And, but I've that's something that's never ever been part of my thinking. I don't. I'm very very hippie-ish when it comes to my career. I don't think about my career. All I think about is writing a new show, doing a new show, and I enjoy that whole process. Was was that because of the way you came into it? Do you think, or is it a case of you kind of always think maybe this will come to an end, so I'm just winging it right <sighs> yeah. now? I think part of it is you know I just I I yeah I got I I got. Uh, you know, somebody said to me, I, th- "I think you should do comedy. I think you'd like you'd like it and be good at it." And I got into it and liked it, and I think I'm quite good at it. And so I think I've achieved. And I, my, when I first started out, I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed it. And then when I found out you could do it as a job, I was like, "That is unbelievable! You can get paid to just have a laugh and t- tell some stories and all these things you've crafted. You can tell them to a room full of people that are there to listen to them and." And then you get paid money for it. That I couldn't understand that concept. So, when I I remember thinking early on, I reckon I could make a career out of this. If, and I thought if I could ever make my living, like actually not have to have another job, then I would be the luckiest man alive. And then the moment I did that, I was like, right. I've, I mean, I mean, I've sort of ticked off my dream already in life. So I I, I almost can't bring myself to get annoyed when you know when something doesn't come come off or. You know, some uh, yeah. I can't. I find myself, if I uh, if if even at any point, I would I could uh, hear myself say, "I wish, well, why aren't I doing that? If so and so is doing that, my I would have a go at myself too much to let that happen again." How long did it take you to get to the stage where you were only earning money from comedy? I actually did it really quick, and that's not in to sort of say like, "Yeah, it was really good," so, but I just mean I just I don't know how it happened. I I did I got lucky with a few little breaks like them competitions and stuff like that and i also it was timing as well i I started out just before the comedy boom like you know i started out in like 2005 i didn't do many gigs but 2005 2006 you know was that was the time when stand-up on tv was just starting to happen so the actual open mic circuit was pretty small you know it wasn't huge so if you were good you rose to the top really quick whereas now it must take years to just even you know get (laughs) paid gigs and stuff you know i'd do an open spot somewhere and you know i'd be back getting doing a paid 15 a month later not even like six months later you know it was pretty quick some of the clubs had a waiting list like comedy store still had a pretty long waiting list but not compared to what it is now so you could still progress much quicker i started out 2005 
2005. I did actually, I did my first open spots in 2004, but only a few. In 2005 is when I started doing regular open spots, like, you know, at least one a week. And then 2006, I really went for it and I won a couple of competitions. But summer 2007, I quit my day job. And I mean, when I say I went full time, I was poor. But <laughs> I also then had the time to commit to it and write more and just push myself, travel more, do more gigs every, all, all over the place. So really, yeah, 2007, I went full time. But yeah, it took another year or so to be making enough money to not just be stressing about money all the time did you and i mean this with the greatest respect did you think you were good enough when you went full-time because by the sounds of it with all that luck it, it might have been not too soon but just just a, a wave pushing you forward and you went with it um no i didn't think i was good enough to be but then i just that's i don't th- i still often don't think i'm good enough like you know i'm still working towards a level of ability and you know i'm still working towards not perfection's the wrong word but you know i'm very hard on myself in terms of what i'm doing on stage i remember like getting booked to do the birmingham glee club which you know is one of the biggest comedy clubs in the country one of the best comedy clubs in the country and i got booked to host a weekend when i was you know i'd only been going two and a half three years and i was not good enough to do that and I, I i think that is a gig that needs a lot of experience and ability and you know i i did i did well enough that they booked me again but in my head at the time i thought i was winging it i thought you know i don't fully deserve to be here there are, there are probably people that have been going 10 years that are good that can't get this gig and so yeah the part of me was like I, i'm weirdly now i feel like i'm good enough to play any club you know, I, I know I know my ability, I know sort of my skills, I know I can play pretty much any club in the country, you know, and in Europe, and you know, I play all over the world, and I, I, I'm getting to a point where I think, right, I'm good enough now for all of these, and I'm happy with where I'm writing my shows, so yeah, but I'm still working to be better and better, you know, every time I think, how good am I, I just look at someone like Tommy Tiernan, who's my favourite stand-up, and I think, that's, that's how good I want to be, but that, you know, it took him 20 years to get that good so I've got plenty of time yeah yeah definitely and, and I know what you mean about taking an opportunity because it's better to say yes than turn it down yeah because otherwise you don't know what they're going to take from that turn down yeah but I mean I think it would show a lot of character I think to turn down something you don't think you're ready for and I know people that have done it I know really good comics who have turned stuff down because they thought it wasn't the right time and some of them you know now are household names because I think they had that awareness of what they were doing but uh, yeah for me I was just so eager to do every gig that I just took them even though I thought this might be a bad idea but it sort of paid off you know it, may, it meant I, I started getting in with the bigger clubs quicker than I'd hoped so that's good isn't it yeah it's not I, I wouldn't put it down <laughs> no it's not um, yeah I would sort of but how did your how did your anxiety work out for that because if, if I'm doing so say I'm doing a, a, a big club that yeah. I've never done before I tend to try and not think about it until I'm there yeah, and yeah. then when I'm there, I tend to try and record and vlog it rather than be in the room in right. case that happens. It doesn't tend to happen anyway anymore. Yeah. But when it did, it was a bit like I, don't, I, I feel I felt like I, f- I felt like I was definitely the open spot in some green room. Yeah, but that never goes away. You know, I'm really? still I know not at all. I'm still there's weekends I'll do like the comedy store, and you know I'll be there with older big circuit hitters you know people like Jeff Innocent and you know Ian Stone and Joe Caulfield these sorts of people that have been around for years that you can put them on any spot on any bill in the country on any night and they will absolutely smash it and when I, yeah when you put me in a room with them people and I suddenly feel like a 10 year old you know what I mean I was like, oh, they'd be like oh no I'm the, I'm like the, I feel like the open spot again and I think that's an exciting thing to have to have because you don't ever want to feel wander in feeling like oh here I am again you know what I mean that's sort of just giving up any excitement for it yeah like I said comedy is weirdly one of the things I've I've, I've done my anxiety has always been about my personal life it's always been about myself and me as a person it's always been me getting on myself about everything that's not comedy weirdly like sometimes it, can, it does you know sometimes yeah I mean a bad gig will I'm better at it now but yeah bad gig would spin me out for a long time it used to you know it would ruin a weekend what's your coping mechanism say say you'd had a gig that you personally feel you've died at yeah, might, yeah. might not be the audience felt it might not be the club felt it but you've interpreted it yeah, that yeah. way because it's totally different so how would you deal with that terribly <laughs> I, I'm, I'm i'm the worst company I coping mechanisms more oh, no i don't i don't have a coping mechanism mine is I become an absolute... I'm unbearable after a bad gig. Like, you know, if I... I'll be sh- such shitty company. Like in Edinburgh, if I have a bad show in Edinburgh, which, you know, again, I've sort of... I, it, it does... It becomes lesser and lesser, as, you know, the further along you get. But, you know, I just... I'll just normally I'll still try and do the things I normally do because I want to get through it like you know I don't want to just sit at home and wallow I'll normally go out for just meet a few people have a 
drinks, just have a chat. But I'll just be sitting there the whole time so miserable and moody and I'll get angry about any little thing. And I, yeah, it's just that, yeah, I'm really bad for it. I'm really bad until I have a good gig. That's essentially it. Some people have this thing where, you know, is it Sarah Millican's got that great okay. thing or is, is it 11am the next morning? Sound like that, yeah. Where she's allowed, she allows herself to be annoyed until then, but I don't have that self-control. If I have a really bad gig, I am convinced that is that is it from now on. That's I'm never going to be good at comedy again. I've been found out, done. Right, next gig, I'll do a test. So if, if it's that bad again, I'll give up. And I've, I've, that's weirdly a thing that me and Ellis James we made an agreement. It was like six years ago that um, if we ever have three bad gigs back to back, we'll give up comedy. And it's weird because like we'd forgot about it, and then you'd, I'd suddenly I'd get a text from Ellis out of the blue just going like I'm on two mate <laughs> and, I, and it was back and forth so yeah, yeah. and I think you know it's that that's how badly I deal with a bad gig in the sense of if I if I don't have a good one at the next one or a good enough one my in my head it's probably not I probably wouldn't but all my thinking is going right if I have another one like that I'm done I'm out of here I can't put myself through that how much does your personal life then impact you before you go on or do you just literally as you get on stage just all of a sudden you are let's put it this way card only the character on stage it, I, I, can, I can absolutely switch to on stage and it's not because it's a character it's because I feel probably the most and they're getting closer actually but especially up to a couple of years ago on stage was when I felt the most calm of the day that was the moment walking on stage was when all my troubles disappeared all the background noise in my head disappeared and it was just this quiet like sort of just it was it was almost silence I wasn't even thinking there's that thing they say about flow when you're in the flow at the moment it was Stu Goldsmith told me about it and it's that thing of when you're just in the moment and doing the show it's lovely everything just goes quiet and it's nice and it used to be a real relief to go on stage when I was had a lot of background noise the rest of the time now as I'm happier in my life they're much closer together those two things but yeah this, I've had terror I remember I remember getting a phone call so I, I, was, I was doing the comedy store actually I was opening 8 o'clock start this was a couple few years back before they changed the times and um, I was on first I was on at 10 past 8 and I got there at 10 to 8 and I got a phone call as I was just walking into the comedy store so I just had reception because you lose it when you go downstairs I answered it and I got told that my cousin had died and she you know she was younger than me she'd had some health issues but it was still absolutely out of the blue and you know we used to be really close growing up and sort of obviously as we got into our 20s and I uh, no, got into my 30s we sort of drifted apart in the sense of we didn't see each other that much we lived in Scotland but it was it absolutely knocked me on my ass like really I like shock I was in shock I didn't tell anyone in the dressing room I was just very quiet but I went on stage and managed to somehow managed to do a passable gig having just learned that information I think that's a good example of how much when I go on stage I can sort of put everything else in my life that's going on away and just do what I want to do but then that's not to say sometimes if I've got something going on in my life that's really bothering me I will talk about it on stage I, you know I, I will just think do you know what I'm not going to just go into shutdown mode I'm actually just going to talk about this and I'll just let loose yeah there's an interesting story about Weird Al Yankovic yeah. his parents died I think it was or his dad died or something like that and it was he got the news just as he was waiting to go on a massive arena show oh god I know but he said he still went on and the reason was was because he wanted to make sure that everyone else didn't have a bad night and yeah. he, he wanted to make sure that his night didn't get impacted by 10,000 others or something yeah, yeah, yeah. and I really like that I thought yeah I mean I don't know if my dad died if I could still go on and do a show to that many people but no. I, pre- I, I respect him for it and I think it's a well I suppose it's also a timing thing like, you know, it sounds horrible to say but like yeah if, some, if, my, yeah, if I heard like a you know, family member died at lunchtime and I was doing a gig that night I imagine I'd cancel the gig mm. but that weird one with my cousin i think yeah it was that the thinking was i was walking in i had 20 minutes till i was on stage i just found out the news part of me thought i think i can get i can i can do this gig and put it to one side and almost just deal with this later you know and it, yeah i think i think yeah, i think it is possible you know i think you can sort of switch off and go into comedy mode if you need to you know when i was in a relationship that was struggling when i was in a bad place as well you know there was times when i would walk you know i'd walk into a gig in such a bad mood but have such a good gig because I was so excited just to get on stage and just shut everything down and just do that for 20 minutes I'd have nothing to worry about <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I found it a really refreshing thing no I know the thing I, I have a similar thing in that it's it's one of the only times that I can just be calm yeah. and be very comfortable and I know and, and to my friends who don't do comedy they find that mental oh, it sounds mad to, any, to most people yeah because yeah. for me to say right the only place I really feel comfortable is in front of 20 to 100 strangers who you know I can talk to uh, about stuff that isn't in my head yeah no, I agree um, it, it, they, they sort of go can't, can't we just talk about the thing now and I'm like we can 
but I find like sometimes you you don't get that that white noise loss. Yeah, yeah. I know. I but I've often I've often found that the first time I'll say something about myself that bothers me is on stage rather than to a therapist or rather than to a close friend or my girlfriend or you know I, I it will often the starting point of me dealing with an, an issue from my life will be me saying it on stage because I find that I'm yeah I'm less filtered on stage than I am in day-to-day life because you know I sort of you day-to-day life you're constantly worried about what you're saying to people like how it's you know you're talking to I know when I'm talking to people I'm a bit more guarded around people when I'm not on stage and I, yeah I do find I let my guard down a bit and just when I when I'm free flowing on stage I've said some terrible things about myself that I sh- you know that I should never have revealed like I, re- I had a rev- I said something on stage in Cla- at the Clapham Fringe the other week and I'd weirdly I had said it to I was there with comedian Chris Martin and we were chatting before the show and he's reminded me of something I'd done you know few years ago it was a horrible story like something i'd never tell, told on stage it's really disgusting and i just said it to him and he was really caught off guard by it and uh and we laughed and then it was that weird thing where it, just because it was in my head i just i then told a room full of strangers for no like just for no reason about half an hour into the show it just came into my head again and it just blurted it out and it was just that and i think that thing of they can, often an audience can sniff that as well they can sniff when you've just totally said something that you had no intentions of saying and not don't regret saying but it's caught you off guard that you've told a room as well i think it's a real nice moment i pretty much stand by most things i say on stage so i don't tend to regret stuff but i remember i was doing i did like a, a week worth of previews so every night I put my own gigs and I was going through the show and I couldn't find an opening for the show for love nor money or any time I was doing it and I remember just going up on stage after a friend of mine had done some like opening stuff and I just said um, do you know you know you know when you're dating someone and you don't like them or something like that right but then you carry on with it because you just don't know why you don't like them or or something like that and I remember and I remember they laughed at that and I was and my my girlfriend was in the front row at the time (laughs) and I was just thinking to myself that's why I'm with you like I don't know why I like you and it's annoying me and that's why and then I carried on with that as and I kept perfecting it and getting it better because obviously you can't relive the blurt no you can't and that's yeah I don't think you should try to either so it's often that's one of my (laughs) that's one of the things I really I really don't like seeing and it's getting I, think, I don't think it's that common I remember when I started out it was a big thing you know um, the fake like mistake on stage that sort of accidentally but on purpose saying a word wrong and then going oh what have I done that for and then you suddenly go off on a weird well that'd be like this and so I, think it's, it's, I think it's not done so much now just based on the fact that influences are different aren't they like when I started out not started but when I started sort of getting alright the influences for my generation were like for my age generation as well just comics of, that were younger starting out all looked at Russell Howard and, and obviously Kitson before him who's influenced him like there was a lot of that sort of you know faux laddiness on stage where he'd sort of be like all like little asides and things that were really Kitson-y and, I, and they fed through the people that he influenced so the fake mistake was sort of a weird big thing when I yeah around them but now I think a lot of the influences have changed now whenever I see new, newer acts they're sort of the things that they're mannerisms and stuff tend to be influenced more by James Acasters and stuff like that he's become very influential I think and Stuart Lee's got you know back in the limelight a lot of Stuart Lee-esque asides and sort of slowing down repetition I got reviewed last I think it was last year or the year before by Julia Chamberlain and the start of the review said um, a white skinny Stuart Lee that was the opening of her (laughs) review and I was like I'm nothing I don't think I'm anything like him but and and I emailed her did I email her about it I think I wrote the email I don't know if I sent it you know when you like write something to a reviewer to go what are you on about but I just it was taking me back because I you know, I I know who my influence are. I know who I like, yeah, yeah. and who I consume all the time. And I do like Stuart Lee. Yeah. I, I I liked him a little bit less a few years. He's going through a weird phase, but I I just don't see myself doing that. Yeah, yeah. So as in like I couldn't stand there that. So it was kind of a weird one. And I think you can't fully judge who's influenced you. A no, bit like no. we were saying before with the media, where I can't fully pinpoint where that came yeah, from. Yeah. But I I like how you feel like you can in a weird way. Well, yeah, I think I I know like when I yeah I just remember when I you know when I was a young new comic seeing people like Russell you know Russell was he was Kane Howard or How, uh, Howard probably <laughs> was the most you know Russell Howard was just starting to take off and he was young he was you know and his style was it was silly stories and it was it suited what was happening you know you know and I was that age as well I sort of you know I think he's a year or so older than me but you know he'd been doing it a few years already so the experience he had was amazing just seeing him riffing and, and that's the sort of stand up that I was in my head thinking I was doing I wanted to mess around and tell funny stories from my life and you know do it with that 
freedom so i think he you know he definitely was an influence i think i've changed you know but i've i think my style's still story based but i think it has changed quite a lot you know so i would he's probably not an influence in the sense of what i do now but he definitely was when i started out i was going to talk to you about your new show and tour um you did a really interesting it was a quote so i don't even know if they've done it out of context or whether it was whatever yeah it was in a huffington post thing where you said that even if you don't have signs of mental instability the job could maybe even push you over the edge yeah i don't know i don't remember what i said but i think what i meant was i think they often said there's often that assumption that all stand-ups are mad or you know we're all crazy we've all got some form of mental health issues but i don't think that's true at all i know some stand-ups that are the most mentally stable people i've ever met in any walk of life just really come from a decent background never had too many life stresses and they're just doing all right but i think what i meant by that I reckon is that if you have got issues that are even bubbling under the surface like you know yeah like things you might not even yeah you might have experienced them now and again but you haven't put a label on them I think the lifestyle is not good for that like you know I, I think the amount of time you spend on your own if you're touring or you know if you're just even if you're just a club circuit touring comic you know you the amount of time you spend just sitting on trains ruminating about everything and you know it can often be quite a sort of drink heavy culture if you get caught up in that which I definitely have throughout periods you know drugs as well you know if you're if you want to get caught up in them you can do you know it's still it's, you know it's it's because it, it is a creative industry so it attracts people that are a bit more you know prone to the late night uh, revelries so, say that. Yeah, yeah. so you know if, it's that thing of if you're you know if you've got issues that want to come out that you haven't realized are going to come out this is the industry to open that pandora's box well there's that cliched saying is that uh comedy is therapy yeah, yeah. and i i debate that i think comedy can be therapeutic yeah but i i hate people who use it as a f- means of therapy because i just think first of all it's not well, and, no. and second i mean they usually haven't been to a therapy session. yeah yeah and, and I mean, it depends where you yeah where you want to if you're if you're doing stand-up comedy don't treat it as a therapy session it's still got to be a stand-up comedy show yeah. you know that just you can absolutely talk about all the issues and you know do it in a but you can do it in a funny way but it, you know if you want to do a show that's about therapy that's you know you can have look at someone like kim noble kim noble's an example of somebody who does brutal shows about his mental health but they're not he would never ever call them comedy you know they are essentially performance art but just have comedy elements because he comes from a comedy background but you know so i think yeah it's about labeling it don't if you're if you want to do a show that's just you know primeval screaming and you know but don't yeah just just change the title of it rather than saying it's just stand-up comedy list list it in the poetry section of edinburgh yeah dude, <laughs> just you know give people a little heads up because i think otherwise imagine going yeah if you're going into a stand-up comedy show and it's 10 percent of it is comedy and 90 percent of it is is therapy then i think you've you've missold it you know you've sort and also then you're going to affect what people think stand-up comedy is you know you don't that's the thing that's why there's people think there's such a divide between edinburgh and the rest of comedy do you know what i mean is that weird sort of inverted snobbery often you find it in dressing rooms in july where people will be going like edinburgh i'm not going up to edinburgh mate. it's just fucking bollocks isn't it you know not proper comics don't do like you know do well up there it's just all ponces it's like it's not true at all but now and again an in a wrongly listed show that you know should probably be more theatrical in its how it's built that, that that's the reason often some of these comics think edinburgh's all poncy when actually there's so much different comedy going on up there that, you know it's good anything works up there if you do it right yeah i mean i've seen a few a few shows that are on mental health or, or an issue like that were basically a storytelling show which i don't put down as a because you can have a comedy storytelling yeah, of course. show but it was more a story yeah. than a show and I, found I suppose that the problem that comes with the just how the brochure is yeah. just comedy or, or theatre why not why not actually narrow it down a bit subsections even like sketch you know you could you could list things as you know you could actually give people things proper labels so yeah. you know we all get to have our own little group don't we it's quite nice I don't know if that'll ever happen though no but I suppose that's one of the that's one of the things over the last few years there's been more bubbling discussions about the comedy awards about how you know it's very so just have just have a comedy award is comedy is now such a broad church that I think it yeah maybe they should sort of section it off you know you can have just imagine imagine going to watch as a judge that you know I don't know who's a proper straight stand-up well like this year actually look at the nominations for this year Al Porter who is just straight down the barrel mainstream not in a not I don't mean that in a negative sense I mean mainstream and it, it works for everyone I, d- right? I don't think I think mainstream again it's another one of those labels that's been hijacked to mean totally. something negative yeah mainstream I, just means it works for more broad, people yeah but so it, you know it but, doesn't have to be you no. know it doesn't have to be and again I wouldn't necessarily because McIntyre they always say oh he's the mainstream he's the model for that and it's like 
Well, yes and no. I mean, some of the stuff he does is so specific in his, like, world of what he does that I don't get it. And, like, it's not that I can't relate to what he's talking about. I just don't find draws of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there's a certain area of society that would find him massively niche. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's that thing of, you know, mainstream. Well, I think, yeah, because I think sometimes it's sneered at, which is fine. But, you know, it's not all, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. Depends what, you you know, people who chase the mainstream are different to people that just are mainstream. Not everyone chooses to be mainstream. You know, look at someone like Romesh. Romesh is currently probably the hottest ticket in UK comedy. You know, he's selling, his tours selling great. What well, he just did a few nights at the Apollo, whatever it was. You know, when you he's been going what six years or something, maybe seven years, I guess. And he's just he's been brilliant from day one. But you know, you wouldn't have you wouldn't say at any point Romesh has chosen to be mainstream. He's not. You know, he's just he is just who he is. Absolutely true to himself. It just so happens that it has transferred into the mainstream and that's a great thing because you know that shows you know you have got it's nice when you see a really good comic actually have that leap and be embraced by that number of people it shows that the British public has still got some good taste haven't they yeah, yeah. The, yeah I, t- I thought it was really but I'm talking about the awards thing it's a, and about how it should be, maybe be there could maybe be a split just because yeah imagine like how do you decide like the nominations say between so um, Al Porter obviously got nominated and Richard Gatt who ended up winning it and them two shows were <laughs> such such post- opposites yeah. in co- like ha- it, uh, to pick between them as to which is the best comedy show is borderline impossible you know what I mean I think there is an argument that maybe they should split it into a couple of different groups well I, I found it interesting because when I was talking to some judges about this on a, on a different podcast some of them said his sh- like Gad's show who won was not the funniest show but it was the, the show that should show. win yeah. Yeah, yeah and so and I, I've seen the show now and I really liked it and I thought it was great and as he acknowledged in it I don't know if you saw it he I've, even not, I've not going to clashed a bit in Edinburgh no, no, oh no it's fine I mean in it he even acknowledges at the end a little a little sort of self-aware joke where he goes one of my biggest mistakes of last year is putting this in the comedy section yeah. You know what I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it's and it's a great little moment where you sort of go, oh okay, like yeah. that sort of thing. But it's got it's got really funny moments in it, and it, yeah, and it's yeah. clearly a stand up show. But it's one of those things where the funniest show didn't win the funny award. But then yeah, I suppose there is an argument. How do you how do you find the funniest show? What do you what do you class as the funniest exactly. show? Is it, is it laughs per minute? Is it the biggest laughs? Yeah, it's, it's an impossible. That's what I mean. It's almost an impossible thing. Yeah, it's, that's what I mean. It's it's hard. It's hard to uh, narrow them down, isn't it? And and also it could come down to the people that have seen a show just didn't like that show and they've just not found an audience for it so it's not that it's not the funniest show that's what I mean you could watch what imagine you based it on laughs per minute you could have the show that was the biggest uh, uh, you could watch it test it with a meter or something Mm. and then technically that's the funniest show but then you watch it on a bad night it's not going to be the funniest show because yeah, it won't be getting a laugh. So it's actually, you know, what I'm saying is it's bloody impossible. <laughs> we should all just give up. We should. <laughs> I haven't had three bad gigs yet. Give me a break. <laughs> like, at, least, at least give me three. Give me three strikes. <laughs> I was going to talk about touring because you, you obviously, are you on tour at the moment or have you just I finished do, it? Well, I've done, I'm doing a couple of dates this year, but mo- I'm actually doing all of the majority of them in February and March next year. Because you were talking uh, in this, this the, the part of that quote was about how being on your own in hotel rooms, and you specifically mentioned Hull, was... Um, actually, yeah, I, yeah. I use that as a... That's the sort of Hull is the go-to, and go I feel to, bad. It's, it's a actually, go-to funny town. It's it is a funny. It's got a funny name. Yeah, and you know, name. and also I think when I picked it, you know, it always you know about ten years ago it used to get picked as like the worst place to live in the UK. But I think it was just really badly hit by the economic crisis. But actually, it's coming up in the world, so. I retract that statement. You hear that, Hull? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I've got a really good listenership in Hull, so you yeah. should be fine there. <laughs> I just did my own tour this year, and I found the travel was not the hard part because I'm used to that for yeah. regular clubbing. It was crashing on sofas and floors of either people who've seen me before or friends yeah. that didn't kill me but it was just not having any time on my own that wasn't moving yeah yeah and yeah, I wondered yeah. how you've got either used to or better at coping with that or if that's I'm way even, better like, okay. uh, yeah I'm much much better now like, I've come to you know what I because I did you know I, I went through a phase of probably three or four years where you know I did a lot of stuff to to sort my head out you know I you know I was in therapy I was medicated I then also started doing you know more so I started doing meditation and things like that and you know I just started reading more you know I just I basically just implemented a lot of things that so that when I did come off medication and I'm actually having a break from seeing a counsellor as well that I'd put other things in place during that time while I was you know while I was just getting it all together that now have just totally helped me 
I find it's weird. Like now, I look, I often look forward to a bit of time on my own. Like you know, if I've got a weekend in a club somewhere, I'm just going to be sitting in a hotel room on my own for a large chunk of the weekend. I, I quite enjoy it. You know, I do. Yeah, I enjoy them times of just having a bath for two hours while just put some bloody meditation music on and turn the light out and just lie in a bath. It's lovely. Yeah, but they were the times when I used to find that was when my head would suddenly go right. It's just me and you, mate. Let's have a <laughs> let's have a bloody yeah. chat, shall yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. So and it just yeah, it's I've. I have to. I had to put a lot of coping mechanisms in and really work at them to get to this point now, where I've. I think I've. I'm quite good at them. For, for me, I've realised, especially in the last eighteen months, like everything in life that's positive and negative comes down to habits, hobbies, and routines. Yeah, yeah. Like if you can get into a, a decent enough routine about anything, it it just impacts everything. Yeah, yeah. I went to. I had a big breakup about a year ago, and I went to Hawaii about a week later. Not because I was trying to do forgetting Sarah Marshall. It was just <laughs> literally. It was planned. Yeah. And yeah. I, it happened to time that well. And I remember I slept just on on the side of a mountain one night. It sounds yeah. like a really cliched story, I but I slept there and I, and I couldn't sleep one night because the moon woke me like it shone yeah, on my face. Yeah. And I walked down to the coast, and my head did that thing where it just went, you know. Let's let's have a chat. Yeah, and I realised, like you know, when you're a kid and like you just you you you, you tell your parents, oh, there's something in the cupboard, something I don't know what it is, a monster. Yeah, and they open the door and go, there's nothing there. Yeah, it was my moment of realising. Now I'm an adult. I've got to open that cupboard yeah, for myself. Yeah, 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 and it was such a weird moment because then I started literally working like mad to be like, you know what? If I ever get hit by a car or I ever have a, a suicidal thought again, and I think to myself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. And I, my biggest fear, the reason I don't do it, is because I think I won't do it well enough. Yeah. And I'll end up in my own head. And the yeah. reason, and that's my scary place. So I thought, let's deal with the scary place in case you do it. Yeah. And you need to be in your scary place for the rest of your life. Yeah. You have, you, you've got to, you know, if you're, it's, you know, there are some people that it won't work for. There are some people who are, you know, have a bipolar or you know, there's so many different, so many different things that you can have that aren't, you know, you probably won't get the full benefits of meditation or you know learning about living in the present rather than sort of obsessing about the past or the future but i think if you're more prone to circumstantial depression or you know yeah the ones that actually you can get into a routine where you have control of it on the whole there's still times when it's going to fall apart but you know it's yeah it's the it's the biggest thing i've ever I've, I've ever done like definitely learning to just take a breath and just focus on the actually just think about now and just where i'm at and what i'm doing and it it just i tend to be able to just totally just wipe the slate you know i can go from stressing about something to just can't take a few breaths and just bring it back to what's happening right now yeah, I mean, a, a big learning curve for me was learning. So I always thought I was pretty self-aware. Yeah. And then over the last year, I've realized I was not yeah, until yeah. this last year when I've sort of learned. So for me, if depression's hitting me or something. I've had to learn what level of depression it is and how many senses I have to keep occupied to try and keep it at bay. Yeah. And so like, if I'm just watching a film, it might not be enough. I might also need to be eating something. So I've got that sense going. Yeah. And it's sort of it's sort of just learning that, that awareness of, of where I'm coming from yeah. that's, that's made a massive difference in personal and professionally yeah, yeah well i think yeah it's just that's it it's just, you just learn mechanisms only to work it out mine was yeah just i had to really commit to being a hippie to sort my <laughs> shit out buddhism for me yeah well so, i mean I've, i don't not fully into i'm into all sorts but it was a lot just yeah i had to read a lot i had to do a lot of stuff that really just got me to stop being so obsessed with the past you know that was i think that, that was part of it i used to just i was always carrying this weight of shit around with me that <laughs> and fears for the future but actually once you get rid of those and realize they don't exist you know none of it exists. they're not even there yet. they're not no, yeah. they're not the future isn't there yet and the past can't do anything isn't there anymore do you know what i mean it's all it's just memories existed but it doesn't exist does it so it's yeah i think once you fully commit to learning not just learning it but believing it mm. then life gets so much easier to deal with we're just and this is going to get hippy dippy but we're just what we're telling ourselves we are yeah, yeah. Do you know what i mean like if i want to tell myself tomorrow i am i don't know i, I can't think of anything off the top of my head but i, c- I can convince myself of anything yeah, yeah. and i got into i i learned a really cool thing that if i say something over and over again because i do this at parties sometimes yeah, yeah. if i'm not having a good time i go i'm having, no this is fun i'm having a good yeah, time yeah. Is, to 
convince myself I'm having a good time. Well, that's that's like uh, I've not really. It's one thing I don't really buy into the whole law of attraction stuff. You know, the secret. Uh, I know okay. some people that are into it, and that, I don't buy it at all. It's basically it. about it's about the law of attraction. It's about it's about visualizing and wanting something. So, right. you know, if you want to be a millionaire, basically, it's about saying to yourself, "I'm going to be a millionaire." I'm going repeat. It's, it's repetition. It's believing it, and then if you believe it, it will happen. Now, I don't but buy that. But what I do buy is the positive thought side of things. Of just just you can you can change your mood just by yeah just by telling yourself like it's weird often if you get to a gig i I do it it's the only time i do this sort of in terms of comedy but if i get to a gig and say an act's on before me and the audience are either cold or the audience are shitty and a bit rowdy or something my first thought is always well this is gonna be shit it's gonna be a shit gig i'm gonna hate (laughs) it oh god here we go they're gonna hate me if they don't like him they're gonna hate me that i really go into that spiral but then often what i'll do is actually just change it and just i'll sort of say some i'll say well you know this is just what's happening now but you know they might like me i'll just suddenly start changing and then suddenly i'll start convincing myself they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna love me these people are gonna love me and that's not true you know it might not be the case they might hate me but it just rebalances the fact that anything could happen yeah Yeah, i mean why am i convinced they're gonna hate me whereas it's just as ridiculous to be convinced they're gonna love me whereas you have no idea what's gonna happen go on just thinking nothing just go on thinking doesn't nothing's happened yet to see what happens when i'm on there yeah but i do that often just and it just recalibrates me back to the center is that like your pre-gig ritual or yeah sort of because i i don't really get nervous before a show until five minutes before the gig like I, as in the gig starts or you go on until like five minutes before I go on okay. like I, I can spend and this is not all gigs like it's not like oh, five minutes well yeah, it's <laughs> sort of I don't really you know some people get nervous during the day before a show and I don't have that unless it's a big thing but 99% of gigs I'm absolutely doesn't even really cross my mind during the day unless I'm working on like material for it if it's I say I'm doing a tour show where I know what I'm going to be doing and I might have a few new bits I need to think about but I don't stress about it I don't worry about it I don't get any nerves and then I get to the venue you know if it's a tour show I'll do the sound check no nerves during the sound check I'm just messing around then I go back to the dressing room no nerves and then five minutes before the show starts normally when they start giving you clearance that's when every part of me goes what the hell are you doing I'll be like what the fuck have you, what the hell are you doing here like it's almost like a sort of quantum leap moment where I almost catch myself being a stand up comedian and I'm like I can't believe it what am I about to do this is gonna this is the worst idea I've ever had and I just go into this weird five minute thing of thinking all the negative things that could happen yeah then I just flip it back and go like, actually it's gonna be fine you're gonna be great and I just have this weird five minute debate with myself about all the pros and cons of what I'm doing and then it just clears the moment I, the moment I announce myself or you know, I get announced on just that all just disappears I'm, I'm in the moment it's weird it's a weird little pro, like, process to go through mm. do you think the industry side because I know comedians are doing their best to bring away the stigma but also talk about it more but I'm wondering whether you think the industry side of comedy is doing enough to, to uh, first of all identify it but second of all help performers who are maybe going through stuff I don't really know what they can do to be honest I think you know it is down to us as individuals and as performers to if if you're it's like if you're in, if you've experienced anything like uh mental health wise or you you know even if your family have or friends have if you talk about it on stage in a good way you know don't you know you've got i'm not saying you've got to be too serious or anything but no you know just talk about it in a funny normalizing way then that's you know you're doing your part but i don't really know what the industry can do for people that are struggling you know i, I don't it's you know it's a, the nature of being self-employed and you know we don't we haven't got a hr department we can go to <laughs> and say i'm struggling can i be signed off from work for a week or something you know so it's that you just got to look to your you know your colleagues haven't you you've got to look to other comics that have experienced it or you know just yeah maybe there should be maybe we should start up a little hr department yeah comedy hr i mean there's a there's a i've got a few i'd like to fire straight away can well that's it yeah <laughs> that's the danger we, we're too mercenary aren't we yeah. comedians to fully have a hr department yeah, yeah. so it would be like for sorting out grievances when there's a problem but actually it would just be about complaints about somebody being a dick in a dressing room all the time i was going to ask in terms of, like, just to finish off the touring bit is there like a limit to how many gigs you can do like say in a week or a month before your mental health just starts to not decline maybe but just gets impacted and if you've ever had to have that conversation maybe with your agent of going hang on i can't do eight shows in four days um i i've never really had to i've had to take time off you know but that's it was almost planned time off. i've never you know i've don't get me wrong i've, I've cancelled gigs because i've not felt up to it 
mentally but I've never told them that it's always been just something's come up but it's never down to the number of geeks really I'm pretty I'm pretty good at you know like just getting through it if I do too many gigs you know I do find if I'm if I go through like you know if I go two weeks when I'm gigging every night I do find I start flipping out a bit i start just getting a bit sort of weird and you know i start stressing a bit and the days just all get a bit shit because like, i feel like i need a night to myself now in terms of in the past any times I've, I've had to take time off I've, I've planned it i've sort of i felt like you know i need a break from comedy so i'll just yeah i will tell my agent look can you cancel these gigs in a, a two months time for a week because i just need to go away and get away from everything and that sort of tends to have worked in the past do, do they unspokenly know that that's why you're doing it because you know like some people ring in sick and it's you know you kind of know why yeah i mean i've been quite open with my agent you know when yeah, they knew when i was going for a divorce and stuff that there was every chance that i was gonna need a bit of time and yeah they've always been very supportive they've understood my temperament quite well they've, they've known that from day one when i signed with them you know i was quite forthright in what i wanted and didn't want so they know that i will tell them if anything needs to happen i'm not somebody who will just power through and not you know i'm quite strong-headed so yeah they're, they're absolutely fine with it they're cool but i suppose that's sort of part of it as well agents need to be aware of when their acts are a bit stressed out because i imagine that would be the worst thing if somebody is start like is going through something and you know but has big commitments and their agents are sort of rather than respecting their decision to need need a bit of time trying to push them to make the make the beans yeah yeah i can I can imagine that I know from my other podcast that some people have been pushed forward for you know going to Edinburgh or doing a tour or something yeah, yeah. before they felt comfortable but I suppose sometimes it's just you need a push like you did yeah, at the start yeah, yeah. and sometimes it's you know actual being forced and yeah. it's good that you're not as far as you feel being pushed into I've it. never been no, I've never felt pushed into anything by my agents they're very cool I mean I you know I if anything I think because when I signed with my agent I was come, I moved from another agent to my current one and I did say to him like all the things that make me uncomfortable or make would make me unhappy you know things like and I've, I've weirdly changed my mind now I'm in a better place like I, I when I signed with him I said I don't want to do auditions yeah I don't want to be put up I don't want to go into a room and have to pretend to be love this pack of crisps like do like <laughs> I know a lot of comedians do auditions for adverts and but I'm not an actor you know Th there was things like that and I said I didn't want to do corporates uh, I basically didn't want to do the things that would make me not like you know I, I know things that stress me out corporates have always stressed me out yeah them auditions where you just feel like an absolute arsehole for what you're doing so uh, when I signed with them at the time I knew my you know I knew how I felt about myself and I knew that they would upset me doing them things because they had done the time the few times I tried to do them in the past but then the last this last year I've actually I felt in a good enough place I said to my agents look all right now if any of these sorts of things come in I'm curious to to do them and I've only done I've done a couple of auditions and actually I've I've, I've now got to a place where I'm quite I find them quite amusing doing them because it's such a different skill to stand up that it's I think it's quite an interesting thing to explore and I've done like one corporate which I still vetted it very heavily it wasn't like something that I, I, I got all the information and knew that that is something I can probably do it wasn't you know doing the corgi gas fitters yearly you know convention I've got Alan Partridge in my head now if he's like <laughs> oh, I can't I just I, they, they had a thing I did a corporate once that it messed me up for about a month it was so bad just you know it was that thing it was such a bad gig it was such a I just had to stay in a hotel with all the people and like it just I, yeah it upset me for so long it made me not uh, enjoy doing comedy I once I once did a corporate on a boat and I wasn't told it was on a boat Ooh. until I arrived and I was told I was told I was on uh, second but I wasn't told that they were going to do a quiz beforehand Ugh. and drink for about two hours and so I was on the Thames trying to perform jokes which ended up me just rimping into them which they wanted in the end yeah. because basically they, they had like a few different departments and everyone had like the kind of joker in each department oh, and so I had to sort of in the end I gave a, gave a guided tour of the Thames while trying to he battle hecklers which was fun but not what I wanted to do well, that that's evening. the thing that's what I find they make you do stuff that you wouldn't normally do yeah. so I was yeah I feel like a bit of a sellout when that thing where oh what did you do at that gig oh what I did was I basically took the piss out of their boss for 10 minutes to try and ingratiate myself with him it's like I don't I didn't sign up for that that's yeah. not why I started doing comedy he's probably so. a nice guy he's probably lovely and actually you know you just made him feel bad about himself and the event he organised yeah probably. I just feel like you know I think yeah I think you should only do gigs that you want to do because, because you're at a certain level of fame now did you feel a, a certain amount of res well you've got, you've got, a, you've got a fan <laughs> I've got a little fan base. yeah exactly fame is well, definitely would you not, not a word I would use for okay. it okay okay well that's interesting in itself but 
I would perceive you as as being far enough into this that you have a fan base and and are known enough. Yeah. That did you feel any responsibility in writing a show about depression and mental health? No, not at all. That's weirdly one thing I reckon my agents get frustrated with is <laughs> every time I write a show, <laughs> there is it's no rhyme nor reason to what it's going to be like. <laughs> you know, I probably I did a show a few years ago that was so weird that I could tell my agents weren't happy with me because. I'd sort of I'd just done like a couple of things I'd probably I think I did like Mock the Week like, and I'd like you know and I was going into Edinburgh so I was going to sell some tickets off the back of that a bit not much but you know I think they probably wanted me to do a proper stand up show straight down the line observational keep it simple and I did a weird show where I wrote my autobiography and read, read <laughs> excerpts just because that was a show I wanted to do yeah every year it's different and then I did sort of when I yeah when I went through a horrible breakup really tough breakup and I was you know I did a show about that the show I got nominated for was the one where I'd written a show and then me and my ex had split up before the fringe so I had a show written that was unrelated to the fact that I was now going through basically a divorce and I did in Edinburgh this it it, I think it got nominated because it was such a weird show because I was still trying to do the show I'd written but I clearly was not coping (laughs) I was I was at breaking point so there'd be times where I'd be trying to do an observational bit about something and I would just fucking flip out and like basically have a rant about the, the world. And like I was clearly at breaking point. So I think I think the honesty of it shone through. But like, then the year after I did a show about starting to try to sort myself out and about I went traveling around India to try and get away from everything and get away from comedy and get away from real life. And, you know, that's when I think I started thinking this is a topic I'm really interested in talking about. And then I think it was last year's show that was the one where I really, warts and all, sort of told a lot of stuff that I'd never said out loud before. Mm. And it was hard. I ended the show topless every night to try and get, try and get over my fear of any public nudity. And it really helped, but it was so hard every night. Like, it never, it, it only got easier about three quarters away through the fringe because, and it was, I think it was nice audiences really seemed to get in into it and enjoy the fact that, that I think they could see it was a real thing I wasn't doing it for mm. for a sort of a big ending or anything like that in the show it was just a genuine anxiety I had that I thought I've got to try and at least acknowledge yeah definitely and the last question would be if you could go back to your last lowest point mentally and give yourself one bit of advice because I'm keen not to give anyone listening you know because everyone's so different I don't want you to give other people advice yeah, yeah, yeah so I thought if you could go back and give yourself one bit of advice probably probably the divorce would make is that well there was periods yeah. during and after and okay. since there's been you know there's probably I'd say I've, I've not had a moment that's been brutally low in the last year I reckon that's good it's really good actually and it's it's weird yeah, so it's like but but plenty you know in, the, in yeah that there was probably a three year period where even probably longer actually about five year period because you know naturally long term relationships that end the last couple of years tend to be pretty tough yeah I mean there's the, the lowest points you know it's that thing it's that, such a cliche but if, what you, if, if you could go back and tell yourself anything it would be that it's it's going to be fine you know, if yeah. it's not not only is it going to be fine it's going to be fine in a surprisingly short amount of time if you just A ride it out don't do anything stupid B just do a bit of work don't just you know don't let it just beat you down because there was periods when I did and I just didn't do anything and it just that just you go into a spiral but you know you've got to put a, you've got to put a bit of work in because once you start putting a bit of work in you'll start feeling a bit better and then you feel like oh actually i'll put a bit more work in and then you feel more better and it just go, it builds and builds and builds until one day you realize that you know that really worked all that stuff you know the, the seeing a doctor as a starting point as from the medical side of things but also just find out what works for you other that's little bits like that's like yeah do a bit of exercise uh, just get them endorphins going and it'll give you the clarity to then do something else and just yeah well thank you very much for coming on cheers man it's good chatting that was Carl to hear a comedian be so honest and so humble and so hippie-ish as he puts it was great for me I'm at a really weird stage in my development and my audience trying to grow audience trying to grow my audience growth god uh, my so I've been editing like for the last day or so to get this one done and uh, my head's a bit scrambled but to hear someone say, you know, when they went full time, they were poor. <laughs> like, um, and obviously we all know that. But to hear him talk about it in such an honest and candid way, and to him talk about how he wasn't ready for some opportunities, and that like if he has three bad gigs, he might be done with comedy. Like, 
that's coping mechanism stuff that I feel like more comedians should be vocal about and be more honest about because I think we all have them. I think we all have different ways of dealing with a bad gig and all have different ways of processing our mental health and processing our highs and lows in this because there always will be highs and lows. I, I like you, you can't smash every gig and I, and I, I can't express this enough. If you're a newer comedian and you've had a bad gig, it doesn't mean you're bad. It might mean you were bad, but it doesn't mean you are bad always. It just means that that gig didn't go well, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I mean, it's not, but it also is fine because it's something you've got to learn to deal with. So I really enjoyed this, and I hope you did too. If you're listening to this in June 2017 when this episode came out, I'm at the Hastings Comedy Festival doing previews of my new show, Laughter is the Best Placebo. So if you'd like to come to that, please do. The details are all in the show notes and on my website, but if you can't be bothered to look at those, I'm going to read them out to you very quickly. I'm at the Ye Old Pump House at 7.30pm on Friday the 16th of June. I'm at Deep Blue at 8.45pm on Saturday the 17th of June. And, I've, oh sorry, I'm at the Shaftesbury Fringe on the 1st of July at the Shaftesbury Arts Centre at 5.30pm. There are ticket links in the show notes and you can reserve a seat and come down and say hi. Support me however you can. If you can't make it but you know someone in that area who can and you'd like to support me, please do. Honestly, it really helps out because all the time I spent editing this, I'm not I'm not promoting my show in other ways that I could be. So anyway, you can support me for supporting you and giving you this content really, really comes in helpful. Very quick, other ways you can support the podcast, um, share the link to the episode. If you got, uh, you must be fed up of hearing this by now. I'm kind of uh, a little bit out of ways of saying these things, but just give me a minute, okay? Honestly, don't skip this, okay? If you got any value out of this and you think someone else would, please take a moment and share the link or tweet it or Facebook it or however you want to do it. Tag me in it and I'll be more than happy to say thank you personally to everyone who does that. I can't thank you enough because honestly most of the shares are the reason why we get so many downloads. So don't stop sharing them. Don't assume other people will share them. Please take a minute and help out the show. It helps maintain this thing if you like it maintain it (laughs) it's all i can ask you to do thank the guest the guests have taken time out of their lives time you don't get back time that is valuable to them to support this project to keep it going to answer our questions and to expand your knowledge into the behind the scenes of what's going on in their head or in their heart or in their business or whatever it may be so please say thank you when you're sharing it or just say thank you to them anyway It, it just adds a good vibe and also Everyone in this industry says don't be a dick. Why would you not just say thank you in some capacity to to the guest? Just take a minute and say thanks. Also, if you use iTunes, please leave it a review in iTunes. These help with chart positionings, which obviously means that it gets seen by more people, which means more people have the opportunity to discover it and then try it out. It leads to more downloads. More more amount of downloads we have, the more pe- the more high-profiling guests I'm able to get on, the more information you're able to get out of them, the better everything is for everyone else. If you use iTunes, please take a minute and give it a review. If you don't use iTunes, please consider making an account. It takes less than a minute to make an account, and then it takes about 20 seconds, like given, you know, if you don't want to leave a text review all you can do is click five stars four stars whatever you think it's worth and then hit send and that's it like that's how long it takes it's so simple um if you want to leave a text review it might take you a minute because you just got to write out i really enjoyed the podcast now simon's really great i really love hearing his voice every week it's really awesome to hear him talk i really like whatever you want to say i mean i'm not going to try and put words into your mouth but if you want to be complimentary about my voice that'd be really nice because i've been listening to it for the last i don't know 18 16 18 hours to edit this one because i put this day aside because i didn't have any other days to do it and i'm fed up of hearing my voice so if you have a compliment i'd really appreciate it um as i said i've got a book out it's called how to make a living by working for free if you would like to buy a copy you can it's five pounds as a digital copy Uh, you can get that on amazon or on my website or you can get a paperback copy but only available on my website for 11 quid i think including posts and packaging for the uk if you live outside the uk tweet me and i will sort out posts and packaging i've just done a big mail out to uh, germany and china so if anyone else would like to buy a copy who is not in the uk i'll have to find out how much it will cost to post to you and i'm more than happy to do that so just give me a nudge and we'll sort something out you can also call that your donation like if you want to donate five pound or more if you thought this podcast or all the podcasts you've heard are worth more than a fiver please consider 
uh, buying the book instead and doing it that way. But you don't have to if you don't want to. It's absolutely fine. But it means you get something back for your donation, essentially. Um, or if you are really feeling good and you really want to help this out in the long term, you can become a patron from $1, which is 80p. Is what you just heard worth 80 pence of your money? right? That's all I'm asking for in order to keep this project going. If if we could get a hundred people to give one dollar each episode, we uh, honestly, it would be at the point where it would, my time wouldn't be covered, but the cost of getting to places and part of the editing costs would be. So if you're sitting there thinking, I've got 80p every two weeks to give Simon, that's doable please go to Patreon and consider becoming a backer. It really, really helps support the show. And if you get value out of it, please don't feel, don't again, don't assume other people are doing it because uh, I get sporadic donations at best uh, in terms of financial ones. And I'm fine if you can't afford it. I don't want anyone else going into debt for this project other than me, but I get sporadic donations at best. And I really, really need the support if I can get it. So um, this is not, uh, it's sort of like an Edinburgh bucket speech, but a little bit, a little bit more extensive and slightly more needy. <laughs> I'm aware of how I'm going to sound when I've got to edit this. So please do uh, do one or two of those things and help maintain it. Oh, and join the Facebook group because I've got some amazing guests lined up. And if you want to ask any of them questions, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I really wish I'd had the opportunity to ask some of those guests a question and you were like, where, where can I find out about who's on next? Go there. I've got agents coming on. I've got a couple of very high profiling comedians from t- telly coming on i've got a comedy commissioner coming on i've got uh, a couple of more festival founders coming on i've i can't reveal the names yet unfortunately because i haven't got firm dates in there but when i do that is the place i reveal it so if you join the facebook group you'll be the first to know and you'll be able to ask your questions to them via me so please do that thank you very much for listening thank you very much for subscribing thank you very much for supporting the podcast in any way you see fit And I will see you all in about 15 days time. Bye.